This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Vine Guy podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg, and I have the pleasure of having as my guest this week, Gustavo Gonzalez. Now, for over 20 years, Mira Winemaker and co-founder Gustavo Gonzalez has been practicing his craft in the Napa Valley and around the world, including Italy, France, Argentina, and Brazil. His local knowledge and global perspective bring a unique approach to Mira's vineyard practices and winemaking techniques. Gustavo's love for wine runs deep into his childhood. He grew up in California's Central Valley, Go Valley Boys, Surrounded by family and long-standing ties to agricultural businesses who instilled in him a love of the land and an appreciation for wine. He spent his summers in orchards, vineyards, cotton fields, tomato fields, and canneries, but he never intended to be a farmer, much less a winemaker. His dreams were filled with airplanes, rockets, and cars. But one day, he found a bottle from Robert Mondavi Winery that his father had put away, and after reading the mission statement on the back of the label, his trajectory changed forever. Gustavo's newfound appreciation for winemaking's heritage took him to Napa Valley, where he joined the Robert Mondavi Winery in 1995 as a harvest lab sampler, where he witnessed firsthand the transformation of grapes into wine. In his 17 years at Robert Mondavi, Gustavo earned the title of head red winemaker and established the Robert Mondavi Winery Reserve Cabernet Sauvignon, as one of the leading Napa Valley Cabernets. In addition, Gustavo has spent time at the famed Ornelia Estate in Italy. And I want to hear more about that. In 2009, thanks to Gustavo's strong relationships with leading Napa Valley grape growers, Mira went from a shared dream to a reality. Gustavo quickly established Mira as one of the top producers of small production, single vineyard wines in Napa Valley, including fruit from premier vineyard sites such as Hyde Vineyard in Carneros, and Schweizer Vineyard in the heart of Stag's Leaps District. With 20-plus years of knowledge and experience, Gustavo was able to allow the innate spirit of the fruit to shine through in the wines of Mira. Gustavo Gonzalez lives in Walnut Creek with his wife and rescue dog Leopold. Fluent in five languages, he especially enjoys travel and history. His musical interests include an extensive guitar collection, and he has had a lifelong fascination still with aviation and classic automobiles. Gustavo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's such a joy to be here. Wow. So I, I just want to touch on something real quick before we get into this too far. Uh, we touched on that you spent time in Ornolaia in Italy. Tell me about that experience. That was an incredible experience. <clears throat> During the, the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, I actually went there to live for a, for a time and, and uh, be there for harvest and continue the blending on some of the wines that were already in barrel. And I would say that it was the most revealing uh, time of my life in terms of career for winemaking, where I really, really got to be extremely hands-on in every aspect. You know, when I was at Mandavi, it's, it, it's a little bit bigger reality than on the line. Not as big as people think, honestly, you know, a lot of people uh, confuse Robert Mandavi with uh, the other brands that are under the Robert Mandavi umbrella. So here in Napa, we weren't necessarily making the amount of cases that people thought we were making, but it wasn't a small estate like Ornelia is. And so walking from where I live in the villa, which sounds really fancy in villa 
villa in Italian is just a farmhouse where people live. <laughs> it's not anything fancy. And so, you know, there was no a fancy swimming pool with ornaments or anything like that. It was just a, a, a big stone structure with a lot of rooms where some of us got to live while living there in this area where there was nothing else to do at the time. This is at the dawn of uh, Internet and those kinds of communications. So I didn't even have a TV or a satellite TV or anything like that. So I spent a lot of time just kind of hanging out in uh, in the vineyard areas. And part of my, my commute at the time was going from the villa and walking back to where the winery is, which is probably, if I, if I had to, I never took the time to measure the distance, but it had to be like a mile of vineyards all within the estate to walk back to get to where the winery is. And so that was at least two times a day for me. And it was incredible just to see uh, how things were growing, you know, uh, on a day-by-day basis. And the care that people had of the vineyards and treated every single vine and every single cluster like an individual and really focused on that kind of grape growing, you know, really, really detail-oriented, really, really precise. And I think that really was kind of what set the tone for me going forward as a winemaker. I mean, like, like I repeat, it was kind of at the beginning of my real winemaking experience being over there. So it was, it was really cool to get that base. Well, let's talk a little bit about your career trajectory at Mondavi because I'm fascinated how you went from, with all due respect, cellar rat or lab rat <laughs> to the head, the head winemaker of the red wine production program there. That's, it just blows me away. How'd that happen? It was incredible, honestly. I mean, when, when I arrived at Mandavi, I really wanted to be there. I, I applied. So there, there's a job fair at UC Davis, you know, where the, the main enology school is here in, in the UC system. And every spring or so, there's a job fair for the winers. I immediately went to Art Mandavi and I talked to the lady that was running the lab at the time. And uh, she said, well, you know, we have these positions that are harvest jobs. And I think at the time, a lot of people got hired on at harvest to give, give kind of a trial. You know, it's kind of like the minor leagues in baseball. And then they'll bring you up to the major leagues if they if you're good enough. And so I uh, assumed the job as, as a harvest lab sampler which entailed going to the different locations here in Napa where the wine was being produced during the harvest time and sampling the tanks for, for sugar depletion and for temperature management, and then bringing samples to the winery for the winemakers to, to smell, taste, and do their thing. And it was just kind of incredible to really see this transformation when the grapes came in and follow these various tanks. And, you know, we switch, you know, Pinot comes in first. If we, if we talk about reds, Pinot coming in first and then seeing how that goes and then, Merlot coming in around the same time and then switching over to Cabernet and Cabernet Franc was just incredible to see how each varietal kind of has its own way of being and getting to see that, you know, or, or being exposed to that kind of winemaking really basic kind of set me up to be able to have these, these other uh, experiences when I, when I was ready to become a winemaker. And my first job, actually, I, I was fascinated at the time when I first started with Botrytis wines and wines from Sauternes. And at that time, it, it wasn't something that um, Robert Mondavi was producing every year. You know, they produce every so often. And then I understood why, because it's a real pain in the neck <laughs> to produce these Sauternes style wines. And it's one that no winemaker wanted to do at Mondavi. There was a winemaker at the time that was responsible pretty much for every single varietal, right? There was one for, for Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon. There was another person who was responsible for Pinot and Merlot. There's another person for the rest of the Bordeaux Reds and somebody for Chardonnay. And, and this, so turn wine didn't really fit anywhere where people wanted to, 
uh, to, to work at it because it was the last thing that came in. You know, we had to really work to get the botrytis. And so because I was so enamored with it, uh, there was kind of like a, a wine that I got to make under the tutelage of one of the other winemakers. And so it was the, the grapes were ready to pick, you know, to, to give perspective, Sauvignon Blanc is ready to harvest. It's basically the first grape that comes in. It's ready to harvest pretty much mid August to the end of August at the latest, maybe early September. And so here, here we were uh, harvesting these rotten grapes right around Thanksgiving, first week of December. And by that time, the winemaker was just like, you know, I'm done with this. If you want to deal with it, go ahead and stuff like that. And there's a lot that went into doing this. You know, we had to, we had to really have the, the right conditions to be able to grow the right amount of the right rock, you know, because all kinds of rock grows there. So I think, you know, my, my uh, attention to detail and desire to just know everything about what I was doing was instrumental in me being able to go to Italy, for example. And I mean, speaking Italian helped a little bit. But then when I, when I came back from Italy, taking on the reins of first the Sauvignon Blanc and then all the red wines from from the Napa Valley for Art Mondavi. And I think this having this base where, you know, you're, you started at a real basic level and you get to see everything from there on up was just incredible for me. All right. Well, I, I have to feign ignorance, uh, Gustavo. I didn't even know Mondavi made a Sautern style wine. Well, we it was it was made every so often. I think when I start I started in ninety five, there was one that was made in ninety four, and then we made one again in ninety eight. And then based on the results of that ninety eight, I'll never forget there was a Swiss journalist, and we had I don't know if it's still the case, right? But the the Swiss had a reputation for being really really tough. And so there was a Swiss journalist that came to Mondavi, and he got it was a winery a wine that was only sold at Mondavi at the winery. And so uh, the Swiss journalist wrote that it was the best wine of its type ever produced in the new world. And that it was a so turn for the, for, for the Americas, or I forget exactly the verbiage. And I was like, wow, this is really powerful. And wow. so we, we continued to make one every year while, uh, while I was there until about 2003, I want to say was the last one. Oh, I mean, yeah. so they don't make it anymore. I assume it's pretty hard to get my hands on. I think the, the last time I visited the taste room a few years ago, I bought the last two six, uh, 12 packs because they were down to the last two finally. And then, you know, and it's a wine that beneath the age and uh, the wine, the color of the wine was this beautiful amber color and the, it was just tasting delicious. And so I went there with Bear, my co-founder and, and partner here with Mira, and we decided that we needed to have that last amount of wine because they, they just didn't produce it anymore. Well, I have good news. I know where Walnut <clears throat> Creek is, and so I'm happy to come by and uh, uh, for a visit and a bottle of that. I'd love to. Well, please do because I still have some bottles. You know, it's, it's a wine that's not uh, when you know that it's you're towards the end of it. It's not one that you're eager to open. Yeah, but it, it's definitely worth tasting with people that can appreciate that. Awesome. So you mentioned Mira just now. Uh, let's dive into that because I'm very curious. What is the origin story of Mira? Well, uh, as as a young winemaker, you know, and, and maybe as an older winemaker as well, you always dream of maybe having your own small brand, small company, right? Something uh, aside from what your day to day responsibilities are for fun, you know, to see if if you were able to do something one hundred percent on your own, what that would look like. And so I started kind of um, imagining for myself if uh, if I started making my own wine, what would that look like? What grapes would I use and whatnot, right? And one of those ties into one of the wines that I'm going to taste here in a minute. I was on a sales trip, like one of the things that winemakers do in the quote unquote off season, which is basically now beginning of the year until harvest time, basically 
is travel to promote the wines and, and to do what's called winemaker dinners and, and to eat a lot. There's incredible dinners that are paired with the wines that you make. And so I was on one of those tours in Washington, D.C. for Robert Mondavi. And after one of those fantastic dinners, I just needed a beer to walk down the evening's gluttony. And so on my way back to my hotel room, I wandered into the uh, the record bar at the Hay Adams Hotel in Washington, D.C. And I was just having my beer, minding my own business, talking to the bartender a little bit about uh, esoteric stuff about Washington, D.C. and its architecture and all this and mysticism and whatnot. And in comes this gentleman who goes by the name Bear who introduces himself. He's a communications guy. And, uh, you know, I, I usually keep to myself. He's a communications guy. He does not <laughs> introduce himself. And we started talking and he's like, wow, I've never met a winemaker before. That's pretty cool. You know, what? how did you get there? That whole thing, right? How did you get to be a winemaker? Blah, blah, blah. What do you do? And by the end of the night, I had explained to him that, you know, I had this dream of uh, having my own little brand at some point. And the, the cool thing about it is that you, you you don't need to have a vineyard nor a winery to be able to achieve that. You just have to have the right grapes from the right grower who most of the time sells their grapes anyway and a place to make your wine. And so, you know, typical bar scene, oh, yeah, keep in touch. We're best friends now. You know, let's uh, here's my phone number. What's yours? Da, da, da. You know, one of those things thinking that I'm never going to talk to this person again in my life. And we actually ended up becoming really good friends. And uh, a few years later, when uh, the economy was, was taking a little bit of a downturn in 2009, I started receiving phone calls from some of these top growers in Napa, some of them with, that supplied grapes to Art Mandavi. And I called Bear and I said, look, you know, this is our chance. Uh, you know, we know I know the economy's down right now, but getting these grapes is kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And we can start our business and it's going to take a couple of years to get to market. And by that time... You know, fingers crossed the economy will start recovering or will have recovered by then. So we jumped in and we went for it. And we started with some Syrah and some Cabernet Franc and uh, and a Cabernet. And then we just couldn't say no when some of the other growers started calling. And we blossomed from wanting to make, you know, 300 cases to making 14 different wines. Pretty much all single vineyard, single varietal, small production. And so that was kind of the, 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 that was the birth of Mira. And so I, I ended up leaving with a deal that I made with Bear that we both needed to leave our day jobs before they fired us and focus on Mira so that we can make this a success. So I ended up leaving Mandavi in 2012 after 17 years to focus on making Mira. And we had no name at the time. And one of the biggest challenges that we had was coming up with a name and a brand. <laughs> And that's another, that's a whole other story there is uh, t- it took a little bit of an effort, but uh, finally we came up with something that we were, we really, really love. Right, well, okay. Let's take a moment and talk about <clears throat> that. Where, where does the name Mira come from? Well, as you, as you mentioned in, in my, uh, in the intro for me, I love languages and history and culture and I speak five different languages, but one language that I did not study or learn that I've always been fascinated with is Latin. And, you know, Latin is, of course is the root of uh, all the romance languages and whatnot. And I have this really, a uh, nerdy desire to kind of understand the transformation of Latin into what is now Spanish or Italian or French or even Portuguese. And so I have on my cell phone, and this is back in 2012, I have a, uh, and I still have it, I have an app on my phone that's called SPQR that deals with Latin and Latin literature, and it actually has a Latin dictionary. And so I was in, on this other trip. So when I left Robert Mandava, I was also the director of uh, production for Rufino Wine Estates in Tuscany. And, you know, not, not a job that's easy to do remotely. So I got to go there several times a year to Florence and, and visit the wineries and taste the wines and, you know, everything's great. Go back home. 
Well, I was on one of those trips at the beginning of 2012 and then I, where I had to come go to Florence, come home for a night and then catch a flight to go to Australia to do a wine club cruise with people that love Robert Mondotti. And so during this uh, a layover that I had to get on this cruise, uh, there was a creative company that we hired to help us come up with a name that was going to give us the download on what they had, what their findings were about what would be the perfect name and all that stuff. And so after they did that, we both decided, Bear and I, that we were just going to have to come up with our own name. So later on that night, I'm on the ship, and I just can't sleep because I didn't know where I was. I just woke up, like, where am I kind of thing, right? I don't recognize these surroundings. And I couldn't sleep. I'd pop open my phone, and i just started looking for words. And I found – one of the words that I found was is Mira. And in Latin, it's the root of the word miracle or wonder. And so I sent this list to Bear. I don't know what the time difference is between Tasmania and, and the coast of the United States. But he got back right away and says, I really like Mira. Sounds beautiful. It's four letters. Some of my favorite words are four letters. And uh, <laughs> the, 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 real, <laughs> the real miracle is that nobody has the name for wine. You know, we, in the past, we looked up names. Somebody had it. Nobody had it for wine. And so we were able to get it. And in the meantime, we learned, uh, of course, a lot of people think that it's, it's, it's look in Spanish, which it is. It's kind of cool because it's a sensory thing, right? Looking just like wine is a sensory thing. But also we found that in Greek, it means destiny, which is kind of pretty, pretty remarkable. You know, so we got the root of the mirror, root of miracle, wonder and destiny, uh, being some of the heavy hitters here in terms of what it means. Uh, I'll tell you one of the miracles is that this just happened kind of by happenstance in a bar at the Hay Adams in Washington, D.C. So sort of this, I guess, destiny meeting between you yeah. and yeah, it, it's it's funny how the, these mathematics have worked out. You know, one, one of the things that we talk about at the winery is, is the golden ratio and the Fibonacci sequence and how there's things in the background that are working that you just have no idea that are there. And it felt like something was going on here, you know, with this mirror and this destiny. So what, what did you just say golden ratio? I did. And how does that apply to wine? Well... I, I don't know that it applies directly to wine, but indirectly, there, there's a lot that goes into it, you know, in terms of uh, the plants growing and numbers and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not a numerologist or anything like that. I just kind of find mathematics and, and the structure of nature really fascinating. It's like the more we learn about it, the more fascinating it gets. And we find that these numbers that, that uh, help make up the golden ratio are uh, quintessential numbers in nature, essentially. You know, there's uh, the way things grow I kind of follow this pattern, the sequence that uh, uh, a mathematician in Italy named Fibonacci a thousand years ago figured out by watching how rabbits reproduce, believe it or not. And so it's basically uh, you you start with the number one because back then they didn't realize that there was a zero. And then you add the two numbers, the, the two sequential numbers to get to the next number. So one, one, two, two and one is three, three and two is five, five and three is eight and so on it, out into eternity. And if you... Uh, graph this it, it, it's the it's how you get spirals basically and so there's a lot of things that grow kind of following this numerical pattern where you have maybe three leaves and you have five and you have eight or maybe a cluster on a grape you start with one and then it kind of spirals around to form the entire cluster and it's just kind of fascinating to me that somehow it ties in and an interesting story behind that is that uh, when i went to buy the tanks for the winery I try to size everything according to the lot sizes that I have, right? Because we work with everything single vineyard, single row, so I have to keep everything separate. And so the size of the tanks that we ended up being getting were three ton, five ton, and eight ton tanks, which were Fibonacci numbers. 
Wow. And it would also yeah. explain why I have so many rabbits in my yard. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So we also taught, talked a little bit about in your intro. I, I think I mentioned that you really like to make sure that the wines are reflective of the innate character of the fruit from the vineyards. Can you talk a little bit about your winemaking philosophy and, and how that applies at Mira? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in, in the beginning, and this has been kind of an ongoing uh, evolution, right? So in the beginning, you want to think that everything has to do with, with, with the place and the weather and the varietal that you're growing. But there's a lot of things that you do as a person as well that are decision-making to influence how those grapes grow and what kind of flavors you may get. And even in the winery more so, you know, things that you can do to the wine to adapt the flavor, maybe to a certain profile. And so my point is that uh, Cabernet Sauvignon that's grown in Yountville, is going to taste different than the Cabernet Sauvignon that just grows up the road in Oakville. And that's what I try to represent by really paying attention to the growing season. You know, that when we look at a label, there's, there's a vintage on there besides the place. And, and in our case, on the new world, the varietal. And I really wanted to reflect that. You know, we've had a, a really wet year this year in, in, in the wintertime. We still don't, we don't know what's going to happen in the summer, but somewhere along the lines, you know, there might be some things that impact the way the flavor are this year compared to what they were last year. And so my goal is to try to represent that in the wine by the decisions that I take and the path that I try to shepherd the wine down uh, through to get to the bottle in the end. So I would say minimal in the sense that I don't use uh, – products aside from grapes and barrels to make the wine it's more this decision making about how do the grapes taste in the vineyard you know what were the characteristics there and how can i get those flavors into the wine while it's fermenting and aging in the barrels eventually and that's kind of what it is it's, it's trying to maintain kind of this purity of uh what grew that year in that specific place and you mentioned that you have these tanks uh in in your winery uh, i think you you know three ton, five ton, eight ton in the Fibonacci sequence. But I also understand you have an ovum, and I'm not sure I'm familiar with that term. What is it, and why do you have it? So ovum is the the, the Latin term. Here we go with Latin again. The Latin word for egg. So it's an egg-shaped fermenter that's made out – in this case, it's made out of French oak. And uh, it so the, it's in gold – eggs are in golden ratio. So if you want to know what golden ratio is – it's easier probably to look it up because it's really confusing to explain. But basically, when you take when you look at the Fibonacci numbers, you take the the two sequential numbers, the bigger number divided by the number before it, and it gives you this number. And when we look at things that are designed in in, uh, in art and architecture with this with with this uh, um, number with this ratio, it's beautiful to the the way that the eye sees it, the way that that the eye perceives it. And so eggs happen to be in golden ratio. The Acropolis in Athens, the the facade is in golden ratio. A lot of Da Vinci's uh, paintings incorporate the golden ratio. So it, it, it appears a lot in nature, like I said. And so basically when you look at it, it, it looks beautiful, right? So I've never thought of an egg looking beautiful or not. <laughs> and I've worked with concrete eggs before, you know, it, it, with some, some of the other places that I've been at. And it was I've never really thought that much about it in terms of its shape. And and less so the material, you know, the concrete. It, it's not necessarily a material that I that I use. Nothing wrong with it, but it's not something that's in my in my uh, in my toolkit. And so when we went to buy these wood tanks to make uh, one of the wines that we make here, the French oak tanks, we were visiting the cooperage, and in a corner somewhere, when they were showing us around, they had this French oak egg that had hoops on it, like the barrels. 
And I said, hey, that's kind of cool. What's going on over there? So they explained to me, you know, basically what I just explained here about eggs being in golden ratio. And then they went a little bit further and described how eggs, because of their shape, their form, and what's going on uh, during the fermentation with the CO2 that's being produced, they basically cause this churning effect in the egg that it has this constant mixing going on. And so that will impart some flavors, you know, and some things that maybe we try to do manually with their barrels all by itself into the wine that's being produced in there. And I thought, wow, that sounds pretty cool. It's in golden ratio. It's ovum. It's Latin. You know, it's, it's pushing, a lot, you know, checking off a lot of boxes for me in terms of what I think is cool. And so they said, but, you know, this is just the prototypes that we're going to see. We can't make too many of these, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, you know, when you finally have one, I'd love to check it out. Even if you want to send me a demo for free, <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you if it works or not, depending on what you're looking for. So a few years later, when we embarked on this mission of, of uh, uh, actually having our own winery and tasting room, and we started looking for equipment, we went to Bordeaux, and at, there's a big trade show that they have there every couple of years for winery equipment, and they have this egg with no hoops on it, the same company. So obviously, they, they've done their research and were able to build something that is just magnificent to look at. It's one of the most beautiful things I, I've seen in terms of tools for winemaking. So it's a French oak egg on the outside and on the inside. It's a big secret how they're actually able to assemble it because there's there's no visible way that they're keeping the egg together, right? There's no more hoops. They made two of these per year, and we were lucky to have this really close relationship with this Cooper so that we could get one. And we continue to be the only winery in this hemisphere, North and South America, that has not one but two of these eggs. Wow. And it's absolutely outstanding. And we've produced the first few wines in it, and it really does – you're always incredulous, right? You're a winemaker. You have a science background. It's like, okay, I need, I need a little bit of proof to see what this is really about. So we fermented for a couple of years now, wine in the egg, the same wine, the same day, same grapes in stainless steel in neutral French oak barrels compared to three to see what the difference is. And sure enough, there's a, a notable difference between the three wines. I mean, the, the texture in the wine that's producing the egg is, is very, very unique. And it's very, very different from what we get when we even uh, use French oak barrels that were manually stirring a couple of times, we just don't get the same texture. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, wow. that's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and it's right. exciting. Yeah, exactly. Forgive, <laughs> forgive our listeners for our, our delicate puns here. Uh, now you mentioned that you've got the, this egg and these fermenters. It, is there? Do you guys actually have a winery? Is there an estate property that's involved in all of this? We have this beautiful estate in the Yountville AVA, and this is where uh, the destiny and the miracle come back into play. So we've been looking for a place to call our own uh, for a couple of years, and uh, uh, we've been we'd visited some wineries, pre-existing uh, facilities and whatnot, and there was just really nothing that we loved until towards the end of 2016, as luck would have it, Bear happened to be at a bar at Steakhouse where he lives, where the owner of the steakhouse is from Sausalito. And he knew somebody that was in real estate in Napa. And he told Bear, look, I know uh, I was talking to my friend that's a real estate agent in Napa. And he told me about this property that was going to hit the market here pretty soon. And that they're working on getting a winery permit for this property. And so, you know, Bear calls me with this information and he gives me the address. And I said, I know exactly where that is because it's just on the south end of Yonville where the vineyards are. And it's a beautiful spot because it's not actually on the highway, but it's right off the highways in terms of visibility. It's fantastic. And in terms of growing grapes there, the soils are, are such that we can really, you know, 
change what's growing there now and really come up with something incredible there from this, from this little piece of land. It's a small property. It's 16 acres. 10 of it is vineyards. We replanted everything. When, uh, when we made room for the winery, there was no winery here, but, uh, uh, the, the previous owner was successful in getting a winery permit and a use permit for here, which is very difficult to come by. And so we built this beautiful, these beautiful, two beautiful buildings, one for hospitality that's uh, reminiscent maybe of a Mediterranean type villa that's stone and, and just really nice. You know, we wanted uh, to set up this beautiful experience when people visit like they're visiting somebody's house and just be really comfortable. And then we have a winery that looks like a barn that uh, just, it looks like it's always been here. Everything, the, the point of it was to look like it had always been here. And then and the words of Bear was, you know, we're in the Yonville of the ABA. If George C. Yount came to visit, that he would feel comfortable in in, in a space like this because it would look like something he'd be familiar with. Oh, and so, like I'm sorry, it just sounds like Bear does his best work in bars. <laughs> he spends a lot of time in bars, maybe. Yeah. And so we replanted the vineyard. There was that. Merlot Chardonnay. We restructured the vineyard a little bit, put in some drainage because it's a pretty wet area here. We're right next to a creek. Put in some drainage, find, try to find the, the varietals that we thought would work the best here with the corresponding rootstocks. And we went back with some Cabernet Sauvignon that's head trained, non irrigated, that's going to look beautiful in about 100 years when the vines are fully grown. We have two different clones of Cabernet Franc because I love Cabernet Franc. We have Merlot, we've got Petit Verdot, and then on the white side, we have Sauvignon Blanc, and the wine that we've been making in the egg, Sauvignon Greek, and it's fantastic. So you you are head training Cabernet Sauvignon? Yeah, we're, we're, we, we know that this is a, a place that's got plenty of groundwater, and so we don't really need to irrigate here during the year. And so it was. Uh, I thought it'd be fun to experiment with head training Cabernet that's not irrigated, because I worked with some some old vines when I was at Rome and I love those old wine cabernets just produces outstanding, outstanding fruit. Yeah, but very, very unusual, or at least in my opinion, unusual to see head trained cab in this day. Yeah. That's that's really awesome. Yeah, it's cool, you because know, if you if you think about it, we're we're at the same latitude as Sicily, so we're pretty far south. It's warm here. I mean, you're from you're from Bakersfield, you know a little bit about heat. And well, that was my yeah, the, little secret until just now, Gustavo. You, you have now outed. <laughs> I'm sorry, I apologize. But uh, when I remember when a lot of people, when I was at, first started at Mendoza, there was a lot of research being done on how to grow grapes and, and following, you know, we always would follow what they did in France, basically, right? Everywhere. And having the VS, the vertical shoot position like we have now, where every cluster is perfectly exposed to be one cluster as identical to the next cluster as possible. Right. I think it is is great and it works, but here in this type of environment, I've, I've worked in Southern Europe as well, and, and I see how people have traditionally grown grapes there. And in thinking also about complexity in wine, then maybe when you harvest a head trained vine and one cluster's at let's say twenty six bricks and its neighbor maybe is at twenty four, and maybe there's another one at twenty eight, makes for maybe more complex wine than having everything kind of standard where everything is exactly the same. Well, having spent a lot of time in the Tokalan Vineyard, which is very famous uh, with the, and tied to the Mondavi brand, it, it's a very, very different approach uh, to um, trellising those vines, head training versus, you know, what you see in the Tokalan Vineyard. So that's, that's right. cool. I mean, really, just that, yeah. that's fascinating. And good luck with that. I think that's going to be awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we had the first fruits from that labor literally come off last year. We had a little bit of grapes that grew on there and uh, pretty impressed so far, but you know, we have a long way to go. Now you did mention that there's a hospitality building. Can people come and visit Mira? 
We love when people come to visit us. Uh, we're by appointment only, so we're a small space. We do uh, private private visits for uh, the customers that come in. We don't we don't mix groups. You know, we have we give you uh, your own space and your own time. And yeah, we give you a tour of the winery. We tell you what we're about. We taste at least four wines, and we we just really like people to enjoy themselves when they visit here. It really is a magical spot. If I had to, uh, we have really beautiful views. Another interesting fact along the Mira Destiny uh, situation is that the, the hill that's behind the winery is the Wapo Hill where Robert Mugabe lived. And so you can see his house from, from our property, which for me is is really special. And you know, after spending so much time with, with working at that winery and being close to the Robert Mugabe family, it's kind of cool that in the end where we ended up with our wineries in the shadow where Robert Mugabe himself lived. Yeah, he's, uh, he's looking over you to this day. Yeah, <laughs> that's very cool. Now, how could people make an appointment or get in touch with you all? You have a website. We have a, a couple of options. You can go to the website. You can uh, uh, also go on Talk T O C K, the the restaurant reservation system. A lot of wineries are on. We, we, you can make a, a reservations through there, and and we're extremely customizable. So you know, we have a standard tasting that we offer. But you want to check in, you say, "Look, I hate white wines. I don't want to taste a single white wine." I only want to taste Cabernets. We can do that. You know, we're really flexible in what we do, and we just really want people to enjoy and learn is is a big part for me. Well, speaking of tasting wines, you're making me very thirsty, and we're coming up on my favorite part of the podcast. What's in your glass? <laughs> well, I had to pick a white and a red, I would say, and I'm one of those that was not. That, I, I wouldn't say I wasn't a fan of white wines. Didn't didn't drink a lot of white wines. Let's say you know I've always red wines were my thing, and and. Uh, of course, love Napa Valley Cabernets. I've always loved Pinot Noirs from everywhere. Cabernet Franc is kind of my latest love that I've really, you know, once people start learning how to grow Cabernet Franc differently than Sauvignon, you're starting to get these really fascinating Cabernet Francs. And then on the white side, uh, I'm kind of all over the place. You know, what we planted here at the property is Sauvignon Blanc and Sauvignon Gris, like I mentioned. And one wine that I've been drinking a lot of since we bottled it last July is our Estate White Blend. And so it's a blend of Sauvignon Gris and Sauvignon Blanc. This vintage uh, 2021 is 60% Sauvignon Blanc, and the rest of it is Sauvignon Gris. And the Sauvignon Blanc was fermented primarily in neutral French oak barrels and a little bit of stainless steel barrels. And the Sauvignon Gris, some of it came from the egg. And so we put this together. We bottled some of the egg wine on its own because it's really special, but... Uh, we wanted to use some of that egg wine for this estate white wine, and it's turned out pretty fabulous, I would say. I mean, it's it's a, it's a really, really delicious wine to drink. Very complex, really complementary varietals. Sauvignon Blanc and Sauvignon Gris are related, but they're, they don't taste the same. I find that Sauvignon Gris is a little bit more reminiscent of like Riesling or Gewürztraminer in its profile than Sauvignon Blanc. So you put that together with the, with the bright fruit, the acidity of Sauvignon Blanc, and maybe more of the citrusy characters of Sauvignon Blanc, and it makes for this really, really delicious wine to taste. Wow! So, could you describe it for us? Can you tell me about the the palate and the and the aromas? Yeah. So, on the aroma side, that's where you get most of this spicy Gewurztraminer type character, and there's an intensity to the aromatics that just really brings you in. I mean, you smell it, and it's just delicious. I mean, it, there's it's got some stone fruit character on the nose. It's something that maybe you want to keep smelling, but it's urging you to taste it because it just smells really, really lovely. And I think for the kind of weather that we're experiencing now, it's the perfect wine for this. Just to either 
just sit on your patio and enjoy a glass of wine while listening to some great music or, or even with that, with a meal. What would you uh, typically like to pair this with? What would be your ideal pairing with this wine? That's a really good question. What would I pair this specific wine? I mean, I, I hate to go the safe route, but my wife has been making this, this salmon course with beets and, and uh, Persian cucumbers and, and watercress and things like that. And I think it would be something that would be really amazing. Lab. Wow. I could say the only downside to uh, this interview is we're doing it via Zoom. So I am not there tasting the wine with you. And it's <laughs> killing me watching your expression. That's very, it's unfortunate. I'm, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, well, but yeah. It, it's it's a delicious one, you know. And it, I uh, I opened this at the beginning of uh, I took it out of our wine refrigerator and I opened it at the beginning of, of the podcast to let it warm up a little bit. And so one one of uh, the, the characteristics of my wines is that they're all completely dry, you know. And this goes back to trying not to fiddle with the wines too much before you bottle as well. So I don't I don't want, I try not to filter the wines and stuff. So it's really important for me the, for the wines to not have any residual sugar, so we don't have any surprise in the bottle. And so I think what ends up happening is when the wine starts approaching room temperature, it's a much different wine than when it's just super cold, you know, and you start tasting more of these other exotic flavors in the wine. And now it's coming a little bit closer to room temperature and there's so much going on in this wine. It's, it's extremely complex. You know, that's actually a good tip for our listeners. I always try to encourage people to let a white wine warm up a little bit in the glass. You know, if you'd like to have it served cold, that's great. Go ahead, pour it cold have a few sips, but then over the course of dinner or the evening, as it warms up, continue to sample the wine because the changes can be absolutely stunning. And I'm really glad you, you make that recommendation. I do I do the same, and I do the same in, in regards to red wines and, and decanting, right? And I said, you know, the, the people ask me about decanting, should I decant, blah, blah, blah. It's like, you know what, it, it's up to you. But what I normally do is I like to see how the wine is changing over the course of the, of the, of the dinner. For example, and, you know, when you first open the red wine, what you're tasting then compared to what you taste in the end, a lot of the times it's a much different experience. And so I try to encourage people to do the same, you know, just let it kind of open up in the glass and take your time with it. Absolutely. We, we do the same when we're entertaining. We'll pour the red wines early, let them air out in the glass or decanter. And, you know, of course, unless they're super, super <clears> old <throat> and delicate. But yeah, as a general rule of thumb, we do the same thing. It's a, it's a great tip. And speaking of the red wines, what's uh, what's in your next glass? So in my next glass, then is w when I was thinking about early on, where would I uh, poach some some grapes when I was a Rarmandavi to start my own company? This is the vineyard that I had in mind. It's, it's called the Schweitzer Vineyard, and it's in the heart of the San Felipe district. So, uh, it, I, like I said, I keep saying I love history. This is a vineyard with an extended history. You know, it was around. When Tokelon was, I don't want to say it was in its heyday, but when Tokelon was starting out in the 1880s, this vineyard was around. And so the Schweitzer family that owns it now, have, they've had it since the 50s. They're owner operators. You know, they're not these barons from the East Coast that have a beautiful property in, in, in Napa. They actually are owners and operators from California, which is great for me as a Californian. I love seeing that. And so it's a beautiful spot that's uh, nestled right in front of the Schaefer Winery. So as a backdrop, you have the the hill, the famous hillside of Schaefer as the backdrop, and it's kind of its own tiny little valley. It's got these hills on the side that just embrace the vineyard, and the vineyard is on a gentle slope going down to the one of the main arteries through the Silverado Trail that runs parallel to Highway 29 where we are, and so it, it gets a little bit of this hillside effect from this gentle slope that it has, and you don't really notice the slope when you see it because when the vines are growing, but when you walk up. 
and you're sampling grapes and you're tasting grapes and you find that you're kind of out of breath, not only because you're out of shape, but because you're, you've reached the top of this gentle slope that you realize, oh man, there's a slope here, right? And so the, the soils are volcanic. The, the point of the slope is that depending on where you are and where you're getting your grapes from, there are some, you know, because of this gentle slope that are going to drain sooner than others. And so we get from the top of the slope where there's a little bit faster drainage and consequently less water. So the grapes are a little bit smaller and more concentrated. And it just makes this really ex exceptional version of Cabernet Sauvignon for the Valley. Quite unique in that it's, it's a little bit lower pH, a little bit more noticeable acidity, more on, on the red fruit side than on the black fruit side. And just the wine that will age, I almost think forever. I mean, just really, really lovely wine. 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. The vintage that we have now is 2017. It was 30 months in 100% new barrels. One of my goals in making the wines is not to be super oaky, but some wines require new oak to really, really show what they're what they're capable of. And fermented in the in the, the wood fermenters that I that I mentioned when we went to see the egg, and then a couple of years in bottle. I think bottle time is, is also one of the one of the standout or the hallmarks of my winemaking is to have an appropriate amount of time in the bottle before we release the wine, so that well, upon release. They start tasting like they, they can be consumed, but still continue to age for a really long time. And what vintage is this? That we're this is the 2017. And again, how would you describe the nose and, and palate on this wine? It, it, it's such an elegant wine. I think mean, more, more than uh, maybe from Oakville, you would describe it as a powerful area, powerful Cabernets. This one is extremely elegant. It's uh, It's got this beautiful combination of red fruit and cedar on the nose. Again, you know, one, one of the other aspects for me that's important about wine is the aroma in general. I really like a lot of aromatic wines, wines that maybe you'll sit there for five minutes just smelling it and seeing how the smells change and then finally taking that sip. And so I think in this case, there's this complexity of aromas that distill down. It's, it's, it's red fruit and it's a little bit of cedar. So you get a little bit of the oak, but it's not necessarily, you know, I try to avoid kind of vanilla or butterscotch type oak. And then when you taste it, it just basically hits on all corners of your palate. I love that. You know, there, there's something in the beginning, you know, it, it, it's a, there's some broadness in the middle and there's a length and a persistence. And the acidity still, because it's still kind of a relatively youngish wine, is, is, is noticeable. And it's noticeable around the mid part of your palate, but it really helps bring out the end and, and make the end a little bit longer. I hate to ask the cliche question, but again, I'm going to ask it. What, what do you think this would pair with? Well, yeah. And I hate to say, I hate to bring up the cliche of steak. I, I hate that. And I, I haven't done, done maybe enough research in the culinary world to find alternatives for such a wine. But I think uh, a nice steak with this is just the perfect pairing. Well, I'll tell you that uh, I had a 1998 Mondavi Cabernet Reserve with a tri-tip sandwich one time. And to this day, it's one of the most memorable pairings. So... You know, oh yeah, you know, good good tri-tip sandwich and a, a good bottle of cab. Yeah, it's one. Of, it's one. It's like a you know, inseparable uh, duos, right? <laughs> like like you and Bear. <laughs> there we go, <laughs> well, Gustavo. I, I have to say, this has been absolutely delightful, and I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I know you're busy, and uh, you know, and I'm very excited to visit Mira. Oh, that reminds me once again. We mentioned the website. Can you tell us what the website is? Yes, please. If you need any more information from us, it's miranapa.com, M-I-R-A-N-A-P-A.com. And we'd love to see everybody come to pay us a visit. You're going to love it. 
it's going to be hard for you to leave. We keep offering wine. People keep staying. So we, we're, we really try to be as hospitable as possible and as knowledgeable as possible as well. You know, we, we really enjoy the human element of what we do. And so we, we want to share that with people. And, and I look forward to your visit, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. And anybody, when you go and visit, tell them you uh, found out about them on the Vine Guy podcast and uh, make me a superstar. But I will absolutely drop in and I can't wait to meet you in person. And once again, Gustavo, thank you so much for your time today. This has just been fantastic. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. And remember, until the next time, do good, drink well. 